The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, how many people here today were at the Tools for Reading Your Bible workshop this weekend? Raise your hand or make some noise, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so for those of you that don't know, we had a workshop over the last two days at Pacific Bible College. They hosted it for us, but we put it on. My friend Dave here was our instructor over the last couple of days. Just, yeah, right? He he did excellently. It was great. And we provided for two days uh, tools for the minimum of our church and a couple other churches to grow in their, in their understanding to how to read, understand, interpret, and, and even teach the Bible. We journeyed through the whole book of Titus over the course of two days. It was a really special and incredible time. Uh, and Dave was an incredible leader. Now, he, Dave is a friend of mine. So, so quick, I want to introduce my, my friend. So Dave is a, uh, him and I worked together in the same church in Milwaukee for a number of years. We, we, we shepherded at the same congregation. I, I want to clarify. I worked. Paul was there. That's exactly right. <laughs> So, so that's not untrue. That is just really not untrue, if i got to be honest. So he was like an associate pastor, and, and so he did pastoral care, the sermon development. He was great. So I, but I, in that time, uh, and I shared with the conference uh, over this weekend that I got to know Dave's heart, his pastoral heart. I uh, got to know his love for Jesus, got to know his testimony, his journey, his personal journey with Jesus, his godly character. And he was just a great co-laborer in the gospel, a great brother in Christ. And so when I knew we wanted to do this workshop at Heritage that would help both our lead students, but also the church in general, I, I could think of nobody better than to bring Dave out to lead that conference over the last couple of days. And then I looked on the preaching calendar and I saw where we were in Hebrews 6, which is the most difficult and challenging text in all of the New Testament. And I thought, hey, Dave, you're the Bible expert. You want to preach the most difficult text in all of the Bible? And he said, sure, Paul. So. All that to say, hey, this is my good brother, my good friend, co-laborer in the Lord, uh, Dave Cartwright, and he's here today to be our guest preacher. Would you welcome my friend? Obviously, that was embellished a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I really haven't, this is my first time uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I'm originally from New Jersey. Uh, more recently, over the past five years, I've lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, and it really has been, uh, I'm not just saying this, it was four degrees when I left Milwaukee on Wednesday. It's been great to be here. Uh, I assume that Paul in his preaching is still always talking about hiking stories, and, and we went on a few hikes earlier this week, and I am proud to report that nobody got lost, nothing was lost, we didn't have any dangers that we encountered, as Paul's stories often do, so I am still here with you for this morning. As Paul said, we will be continuing our study in Hebrews 6. If you would turn there with me, I'd like to read the text in full and then pray. This is Hebrews 6, starting in verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. 
For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those whose forsake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Father, as we come here this morning, as we open your word and we sit under a text that seems challenging, we pray that you do what you always do, that you use your word to reveal your heart to us and also to reveal our hearts to us, that through your word we might come to a fuller understanding of who you are, who we are in you, and that our affections might be drawn closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever received a gift that you have no idea what you're going to do with? Like, I mean, you get it, and it's legitimately in your head, like, you shouldn't have. (laughs) A few years ago, a very good friend of mine, he, he gave me a potted plant. I'm not a plant guy. I don't own any plants. And he gave me this potted, potted plant, and in my head I was like, what, what am I going to do with this? And so, as I drove home that evening, I, I put this gift, this potted plant, on the floor of the passenger side of my car. I didn't want it to spill over and get dirt everywhere. And when I got home, I forgot that it was there and went upstairs into my apartment. Over the next few days, of course, I would see this plant any time that I got into my car when I was leaving to go somewhere, and when I would return home, I would always forget that it was there. Of course, it didn't take long for this plant to wither away and die. I wasn't trying to kill the plant. I want to be very clear about that. But I wasn't committed to its growth. I I was just indifferent to it. And I didn't give it the nutrients, the water, the light that it would actually need to grow. We see this simple principle all over life. If it isn't growing, it's dying. It might not fully be dead yet, but that's the trajectory that it's on. We experience this in our relationships. Relationships require cultivation and intention. And if we're not investing in those relationships that way, certainly over time they will wither and die. We see this in in businesses. They might start off by growing as they are skyrocketing with some sort of new innovation. But those that fail to adapt, to continue to innovate, rather than succeeding, they begin to fail. Because if it isn't growing, it's dying. 
The question I have for us this morning is a very simple one. Take this principle and let's apply it to our faith. And honestly ask ourselves, are we growing or are we dying? And if we're not growing, what are the things that we can do that we can change to help cultivate the growth we would like to see in our faith? I'd like to title my sermon this morning, It's Time to Grow Up. As we look at our passage this morning, I'd boil it down to what I hope you walk away with to simply this. Be committed to never stop growing. Be committed to never stop growing. Wherever you are this morning when you walked in, whether you have been in church for 25 years, whether it's been a season of joy and growth in your faith, whether it's been a season that feels like spiritual drought. You actually might be here this morning and be like, Dave, I don't even identify as a Christian. I'm just trying to figure out what on earth you guys are even talking about. Regardless, my desire for you this morning is to have a continued or a renewed or an entirely new resolve to keep growing in Christ. Because after all, it is time to grow up. Our passage this morning breaks down pretty simply. We have the call, the catastrophe, and this confidence. Look at the call with me in verses 1 through 3. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, if you were here last week and you've been following along in the study of Hebrews, you'll remember that in the previous passage, the author gives his assessment of this church, of this congregation, this group of believers of where they are. And it's not very flattering. He says they're immature. They're stunted. 5.11, he says they are dull of hearing. They haven't developed where they should be. They're still stuck on, on this square one when they've had enough time, they really should have progressed by now. They should be beyond the basics. This is the call that the author is giving them and us to move beyond the basics of Christianity and into full maturity. And rather than continually having to build the foundation of the basics, for them it's time to grow up and start building on top of that foundation. Now, of course, the question is then, well, what is the foundation that I'm supposed to have that I'm supposed to build on? And fortunately for us, the author gives it to us in verse 1 and 2. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God, instruction about washing the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, like myself, I'm sure you look at that and you're like, all right, well, these are the basics, but like, I don't want to feel like an idiot, but what do those mean? <laughs> Repentance and faith, it's pretty simple. It's conversion, right? That, that at some point we've recognized our sin before God 
and that we've also recognized the Savior that he has sent, this high priest who has paid for our sins. And now we have turned and confessed our sins and put our faith in him and have committed to living a new way. This idea of, of washing, it, it's not language that we typically use in our congregations today, but it's simply referring to baptism. That once one has put their faith in Christ, they have this public declaration that they have been washed and are new in him. And you have to remember this congregation, which was primarily Jewish, this was a big deal. Because what they are saying to the world around them is that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is not what they are going to rest their washing and cleansing on before God. But instead, Jesus Christ, as the great high priest, is the one who efficiently and sufficiently and 100% cleanses us of our sin. Laying on of hands is, is, is it's a way of saying that you become a part of the family of God. That as you have, have, as you have repented, as you have put your faith in Christ, as you have entered through baptism, you are now a part of the family of God. And lastly, we see this idea of judgment and bodily resurrection. That we know that just as Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident that one day we will do the same. It, it helped me to think about the foundation this way. I know where I've been in the past in my sin in turning to Jesus. I know where I stand now, cleansed because of his work, and amidst the body of believers, the family of God, who, like me, have confessed that they are cleansed in Christ. And lastly, I know where I'm going. That one day Jesus will return and eternal life awaits. This is the essential tenets of the Christian faith. This is the foundation that we are to all have. This is the foundation that we are all to build on if we want to move towards maturity. Because maturity, it is going to require that these foundational elements have been poured properly and are solidified and cemented in our souls. Without these foundational elements, teachings of the Christian faith cemented in our souls, there simply is no way to build anything on top of them. I'm not an engineer, but I know the importance of a strong foundation. The foundational work is necessary. Nothing else can be built on it. Foundations, they provide stability. They keep a building from toppling over. They keep it from shaking in the midst of a storm. Foundations are, are designed to have a permanence. A foundation which you are continually coming back to, which you're continually working on, which you're continually repouring and re-securing, that's actually not a good foundation. It, it doesn't provide the basic stability and strength that we need to continue in the faith. So let me ask as you look at these basic tenets 
of a foundation in Christ, where are your cracks? What needs to be stable and strengthened that currently is wobbling? Perhaps you're a new believer here. You've more recently committed your life to Christ. The tone of scolding in this passage is not for you. Though you are building your foundation, you are right where you should be. You, you are actually a new believer and you're like, okay, these are the things that I am solidifying in my soul. Keep up the good work. Be intentional about how you're pouring that foundation. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters in Christ who have gone before you and can help you make sure that that foundation is poured correctly. But for many of us, I'm sure we've been in the faith for a while, and comparing our faith to these foundational aspects, we might realize that the author is talking to us. That actually we have been dull of hearing, and there are some significant cracks. Let me be clear as we evaluate ourselves on the foundations. It is not simply a question of, do I know these things? Sometimes we can limit Christian maturity to, do I hold correct doctrine? Do I know the things I'm supposed to know? Of course, information is an important part of the Christian faith. It's a necessary aspect of growing. You can't grow without knowledge. But our maturity is not measured by how you do on some written exam. Our maturity is measured by do I live in light of the truths that I claim? Do I live on the path of repentance and faith toward God? Or does anything I do outside of like the church activities during the week, my, my life looks exactly the same than before I came to know Christ? Do I have confidence in the cleansing work of Christ for my sin? Or is guilt and shame dragging me down and I'm trying to earn my way back into God's good grace? Looking for some other ritual to feel accepted before him. Do I live as an accepted member in the family of God? Or do I feel like everybody has me at an arm's distance and I withdraw both relationally and then the gifts the Lord has given me to edify the body. And lastly, do I live in the hope that this life is not all that there is? Or am I unsure what happens when my time comes? I'm sure there are some of us here this morning that realize our foundation is not as secure as perhaps we thought it was that you are indeed constantly going back and having to re-pour those fundamental elements. If this is you, it's time to grow up. But let me also be clear, it is also in your best interest to secure that foundation. None of us are meant to go through the Christian life insecure and wobbling. In fact, 
It's a really hard way to do it. It will be exhausting. I'm sure there's some of us in here this morning that in in good conscience, in clear self-reflection, can say, I have a good foundation. I have a foundation that honors the Lord and that I have start building upon it. Praise the Lord. Help other people do the same. As people helped you pour your good foundation, help others pour a good foundation themselves. Perhaps you're here this morning, and again, you don't even identify as a Christian. Hear the basic tenets of the faith. That Jesus came into the world to save sinners, just like you and me. That he died on a cross for the penalty of our sin, and he rose again, defeating death. And that by placing our faith in him, we are able to have eternal life. If that is something that you are curious about, myself, Paul, whoever you know who brought you here would be delighted to have that conversation with you. Because this is the call that is set before us. It's to press on to maturity, to set that foundation, to make sure it's secure so that it can be built up. But then you kind of wonder, it's like, okay, so what's, what's like the, the, the purpose, the reason for this call to maturity? I mean, is it arbitrary? Like, is it just like, it'd be good, it'd be nice if I did it, probably would make God happy, but it's like, you know, maybe I'll get to it someday. Why can't I just be a kid forever? We see that the call to maturity is because the cost of not growing up is catastrophic. If you would look at verses 4 through 8 with me again. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Those are really strong words. It is as if the author is legitimately and literally trying to scare the hell out of us. He doesn't make it some hypothetical catastrophe. He, he gives us case examples. He's like, look, you know these people who were once among you who have fallen away. People that you were side by side with on this journey of faith and decided to take a different road decided to head back, decided to call it quits. And most certainly, everyone in this room knows somebody who's done the same. Whether they're friends, spouses, children. 
People who once professed Christ and have decided to abandon the faith. I'm sure even some of us in this room are weary and unstable and are wondering ourselves, is it time to quit this journey? Of course, as we read this passage, there is a question that jumps up in all of our minds. These people who abandoned the faith, who fell away, were they legitimate believers? Or were they just self-deceived but not actually converted? It's a hard question, no doubt. As Paul mentioned earlier, when he gave me this passage, I was like, really? (laughs) But we got to think about it. And let me say that... uh, My word is certainly not definitive on it, and if you want to engage in further conversation, my email is paul at heritagefellowship.com. Here are a few things to consider. The author is clearly talking to the church. He's talking to a group of believers. That is his main audience. Now, that doesn't mean that there are perhaps people in their midst who aren't fully believers yet. But remember, in in the immediate context, he just called them infants in Christ. But they are in Christ. It only becomes a legitimate warning to believers, the main audience, if it could happen legitimately to believers. This warning doesn't seem to make much sense otherwise. But let's just say that those that fall away aren't true, genuine believers, it would seem to necessitate that we can never know ourselves if we are legitimate believers. It it would be like, well, I'll know if I was true and genuine when I get there. Because those that fall away, I mean, they say all the same things we do, right? Like, they confess the same things we do. They engage in the church life the same way we do. In fact, look at the intensity and the sheer number of descriptions that the author gives those who have fallen away in verse 4 and 5. Those who have once been enlightened have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And if people who have experienced the faith in that way, if their dullness of hearing, if their constant, persistent immaturity and their lack of growth eventually led to such a catastrophe, don't be so presumptuous to think you are immune. Of course, as humans, we never think it will happen to us. I recall a famous father of our faith actually once saying, I would never deny you. Of course, I'm sure both then and now, all those who have fallen away said the same things. So how does this happen? How does it come to this? How does someone who at some point said they were so committed to following Christ 
end up abandoning the faith. And how do they deny Christ to the extent that when they think of Jesus on the cross as a dying savior for their sins, they scoff at him? How does it get to the point that someone whose heart was once softened by the word of God and brought to joy has become so callous to it that the idea of repentance seems impossible? Well, here the issue at hand is that they haven't been committed to growing. Instead of seeking maturity, they stayed as infants. They enjoyed their perpetual adolescence in the faith. They never moved out of their mom's basement. They became disinterested over time and unengaged with faith. And I imagine... For a while, at least, they, you know, did the church things. They showed up, they gave, they read their Bible, killed it at the potlucks. But slowly over time, something was happening underneath that surface because that foundation wasn't there. They were sliding slowly, slowly, inch by inch until they eventually fall away. And actually, they probably weren't even aware that their heart was slowly, slowly, inch by inch, falling away. And by the time they hit the ground, they don't know how they got there. Dull ears, not being as mature as we should be, it doesn't inherently seem that threatening, does it? But disinterest, distraction, so often translate into an unhealthy complacency that we hit cruise control in our faith, not realizing that we're not growing, that no fruit is actually being produced in our lives, and we're on a road to catastrophe. On June 24th, 2021, We were all devastated to learn of the collapse of a 12-story condominium outside Miami, Florida. This 12-story building came down in 12 seconds, costing the lives of 98 people. It was devastating to see and watch the sheer human loss of human life. It's also very shocking to see happen in our country. I mean, given our regulations, our inspections, our engineering, you expect structures to stand. It's sadly quite predictable that in the investigation that followed, all the warning signs were there. 2015, a resident filed a lawsuit about the neglect of just the general maintenance of the building. In 2018, an engineering structural firm came in and found significant structural damage. Talking cracks in concrete, cracks in beam, cracks in columns. 2020, there was a study that showed the land the building was on was sinking. And they did nothing. The warning signs for this catastrophe We're all there. But it fell on deaf and dull ears. The call for us to grow up is not optional. 
It isn't something that would simply be nice, but isn't necessary. It isn't something to put on the back burner of life until life slows down a little bit, until you have a little bit more free time. Because it's a matter of survival. If you're not growing, you're dying. If you've been coasting, neglecting, apathetic, complacent, my plea with you is don't let this warning fall on deaf ears. It's time to grow up. It's time to acknowledge what's going on inside of your heart. Confess it before God. Bring brothers and sisters who know you and love you into your life to help you. It's time to be committed to never stop growing. The call for maturity is urgent because the consequence can be catastrophic. But with such a stern warning, where and how can you and I find confidence in our security before God? Look at verses 9 and 12 again with me. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. I love that the author totally recognizes that he just turned the heat way up in the previous verses. Because he comes right back around after bringing them all this discomfort and he's going to try and comfort them. It's as if he, he, he punched this congregation and us in the gut and then in the next moment comes around and he's trying to wrap his arm around our shoulder. Because as harsh as this passage might sound... As deadly serious as all the warning passages in Hebrew are in Hebrews are, one of the main aims of this letter, both to the church then and to us today, is to produce confidence in those who believe in Christ. It is to give us a confidence that the God who we have placed our trust in will one hundred percent hold true to his promises. It is to give us confidence that the journey we are on now is hard and treacherous, but the promised land that awaits us is well beyond our wildest dreams. It is to give us confidence that the work of Christ is so sufficient, so efficient, so 100% complete that I don't have to doubt about my sins before God. They are 100% covered. And it's to give us this confidence because God knows it's rough out there and we simply won't make it to the end if we don't have it. Friends, I wonder if you hold this vigorous confidence in God this morning. If you're anything like me, I would answer it depends on the day. So, How can we have such a confidence? How can we instill such a confidence? How can we build such a confidence in our souls? 
that we don't fall away, that we remain faithful and endure till the end. Verse 10, the author points us to God's justice. We can be confident that we serve a God who is not cruel. He doesn't overlook your commitment to Jesus, which is expressed through works of love, that our repentance and faith in the kingdom will be honored by God. I thought about it this way. God isn't looking for a way to kick me out of the kingdom. God is always looking for a way to bring people into the kingdom. I mean, even here, this warning is an invitation. It's an invitation that we should take to search our own souls and make sure that we are heading in the right direction. We can have confidence in God's character and in his justice. And because we know this, that that God is indeed faithful to his people, it, it gets to the heart of the matter in verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. I mean, this verse is the main thrust of the entire passage, what the author wants to accomplish in his audience then and in us today. His desire is for us to show earnestness in faith, to show earnestness, diligence, instead of just having dull ears and a sluggish attitude, that we have a desire, a commitment, to never stop growing. So much of commitment comes down to attitude. I'm sure we've all had coworkers, team members, teenagers, who they might be skilled, but man, their attitude reveals their commitment. It reveals where their heart is at and whatever the task is. In the chapters to come, the author is going to give more doctrine which he hopes will build on this foundation to move them to maturity. But for now, before he moves any further and provides any more content, he wants to make sure that the intent of our hearts is pointed in the right direction. Earnestness is the opposite of sluggishness. Eagerness for growth is the opposite of dull ears. Commitment is the opposite of disinterest. This is the attitude we are to cultivate in ourselves and in one another. And in so doing, in in having this attitude, this genuineness, this sincere disposition, and being committed to never stop growing, it will produce a confidence and assurance that the God who died for me is faithful to the end and I can endure and be faithful to the end as well. To have the confidence that we won't slide. To have the confidence that we won't fall down in the wilderness but we'll keep on the path of following Jesus until he safely brings us home. I think one of the harder parts of this idea of eagerness is nobody can tell you 
how genuinely eager you are. Nobody can help you see earnestness at the deepest level in your soul. It requires just our honesty with ourselves and with God and before others. Because you could do all the things, right? You could lead a discipleship group. You can give as much money as you want to the church. On the outside, everything might look great, but there's no one who can tell you your earnestness in following Jesus other than yourself. But the earnest believer, no matter how much is thrown at them in this life, they have a faithful God that they can be confident in and thus walk faithfully to the end. Trust me, you can make it. I know that because while the author has given us case studies of those who have fallen away, he also gives us examples of those who have endured and stayed faithful. He he tells us to be imitators of them. We see those examples throughout Scripture. And I'm sure there are plenty of examples in this room. Men and women who have this earnestness implanted in their souls and are faithfully, patiently walking and enduring this life. Get close to them and imitate their faith. Cultivate an attitude that is committed to never stop growing. Hold on to the confidence that God is just and faithful and that there are plenty who have gone before you and walked this journey of faith so you can as well and make it home safely. In a few chapters, chapter 11, the author is going to give us this list of all those who have been faithful. And then at the end of uh, the list, in the beginning of chapter 12, he points us to Jesus Christ himself, who endured all the way to the cross. Christ is the perfect example of of one who has earnestness, of one who is an example to us of what it looks like to remain faithful despite the challenges. Christ is the one who empowers us to endure, to dust off our sluggish hearts, to open our dull ears so that we can earnestly and confidently strive to the hope that is set before us. As a child of the 90s, I'm contractually and morally obligated to love the sitcom Boy Meets World. For those of you unfamiliar with the show, uh, it's a family sitcom, and it's just the coming-of-age story of this boy named Corey Matthews. Now, Corey is, is naturally intelligent, and he's portrayed as pretty much the stereotypical junior high boy. He's more interested in cards and sports than academics. He honestly is often just trying to find shortcuts around whatever work is put in front of him, and especially schoolwork. He figures that he'll be able to coast just fine. And then there's always the the wise sage, Mr. Feeney, his teacher. One episode, Mr. Feeney is handing back a bunch of graded papers to the class. 
as he passes Corey Matthews and gives him his paper, he scolds him. He says he was disappointed in what he did in his grade. Mr. Feeney then passes on to the next student, and he praises him. And he says, good work, good job. Corey then looks over and he catches a glance at the other student's paper and he realizes that though he got scolded and this other boy got praised, he actually had a higher grade than the student that Mr. Feeney praised. Naturally, Corey asked Mr. Feeney, why are you doing that? Why did you scold me and praise him even though I got a higher mark? Mr. Feeney simply replies, he worked hard for his grade. He put in the effort. He took the task in front of him seriously. And though his grade perhaps was not as high as yours, his attitude, his earnestness, rather than your cavalierness, your sluggishness, is admirable. In your coming of age story in this faith, are you earnest? Or are you just trying to skate by? Thank God that we don't have to be perfect students. We have a great high priest who covered us for when we failed. But we're called to maturity from an earnest heart. Be committed to never stop growing. And you'll have the confidence and the assurance of the hope and promises that Jesus has secured for us. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that your word does your work. Lord, I pray for people here, myself included, that we will have the courage and the confidence to deal with with whatever you might have stirred up. Father, I pray for those who are looking to pour a more solid foundation. Give them the tools, the wisdom, the people in their lives so that they might be secure in you. Father, I pray for those of us who perhaps feel conviction. Let that not turn to condemnation. Let us rest in your son's sacrifice for us and move forward in how you have convicted us in a heart of genuine repentance. We pray for those that might be here and don't know you, that in the hearing of your word, it is stoked a desire to know you more. Pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.